Welcome back, my fellow patriots. We are the most unique country in human history, in large measure because of our Declaration of Independence, and not just the words, but for our dedication to fulfilling its promise. The second full sentence of the Declaration is as follows, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." Unquote. As we have discussed before, this sentence was completely revolutionary. We have reviewed together who the quote we unquote was, that there is truth, that some truths are self-evident, and that among those truths is that all men are created equal, and that we have unalienable rights. As a reminder, unalienable rights are those that are vested in us by the Creator and can't be taken from us by government. Other rights are given to us by government, and it can take them away. For example, there is no unalienable right to Social Security benefits, unemployment insurance, public education, a driver's license, a minimum wage, Medicare, or a 40-hour work week. We might expect those things at any given time, but they are entitlements or licenses, not unalienable rights. Government gave us Social Security and Medicare, not the supreme being of the universe. So, what are unalienable rights? The Declaration of Independence lists them out for us as follows, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. This just rolls off the tongue, almost like a cliche, but it is no such thing. The idea that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are unalienable rights that should be protected by government is truly a revolutionary concept laid out by the founding generation in the Declaration of Independence. Life seems like a simple enough concept. People are alive and they have a right to life. Who could argue with that? Well, maybe most of human history. Death at the hands of government is ubiquitous across the globe in time. Professor R.J. Rommel coined the term democide as, quote, the murder of any person or people by a government, including genocide, politicide, and mass murder, unquote. This is a very broad definition, which would capture deaths arising from capital punishment, wars against other countries, civil wars, crusades and other religious conflicts, purposefully created famines, medical experimentation, concentration camps, forced labor, and torture. It also includes genocide, which is the purposeful destruction of an ethnic group, race, religion, or other group. By Professor Rommel's count, 262 million people were the victims of democide just in the century spanning 1900 to 1999. That includes 50 million killed by imperial powers against their colonial subjects, 76,702,000 by communist China, and 61,911,000 killed by the Soviet Union. For all time, Professor Rommel counted up to 447 million slain by governments. Life has been quite expendable through all of human history, including modern times. But we are not focusing on this overall death toll by governments from all causes. That is a series for other inspiring podcasters. Our focus here is on the Declaration of Independence. And what the Declaration of Independence is addressing is the fact that people are born with the unalienable right to life, and government has a duty to protect life for its own citizens. As we will see in future episodes, 
the whole purpose of government in the eyes of the Founding Fathers is to protect our unalienable rights, including life. And let's be precise. We are not talking about warfare, that is universal and all but perpetual in human history. More to the point are murder, negligent homicide, and manslaughter. From the day Cain slew Abel, that has been a persistent reality. And you really don't need to believe that there was a real Cain and a real Abel. Killing between people, within and outside of families, is as old as humanity. Ancient archaeological research has proven that beyond a reasonable doubt. Government is supposed to stop, to the extent it can, and punish homicide. It is supposed to defend us from foreign invaders. That is why we have the military, border protection, criminal law, police, a criminal justice system, prisons, and judges like me. Yes, I have a criminal docket, and that is, well, another podcast series. In short, the government is not supposed to cause death, but protect it. A couple of caveats up front. I'm not going to jump into the briar patch of abortion or the death penalty or deaths brought about by civil wars or insurrections. Those are very important topics, but they will take our eye off the ball of the nearly universally accepted principle in the United States that once someone is born, he or she has the right to life. In other words, the government should defend, not kill, its own citizens. Now, you might be saying to yourself right about now, but Judge Warren, that means this is going to be the shortest episode ever. How can the unalienable right of life be controversial? Doesn't everyone know? That's why we have a military and police force, to protect our lives. Obviously, government has a duty to protect the life of its own citizens. If only. Government mass execution of its own people is commonplace across cultures and times. Likewise, government policies that result in mass death are also common. Professor Rommel counts up to 295 million dead at the hands of their own governments. As you know, we like to quickly tour history and the globe to explore how unique America is. Here we go. In connection with cultures that rejected the unalienable right to life, a fitting place to start is in the Americas in particular with the Aztecs. They believed in many gods, each of whom required some kind of human sacrifice, and each god had their own particular requirements. For example, the Aztecs believed that the sun god, Huitzilopochtli, forgive my pronunciation, is in an ongoing war against darkness. The sun god needs human hearts and blood to continue to beat back the darkness. If he loses, the world will end. As explained by Dave Ross on History.com, quote, When the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés and his men arrived in the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan in 1521, they described witnessing a grisly ceremony. Aztec priests, using razor-sharp obsidian blades, sliced open the chest of sacrificial victims and offered their still-beating hearts to the gods. They then tossed the victims' lifeless bodies down the steps of the towering Templo Mayor. Andres de Tapia, a conquistador, described two rounded towers flanking the Templo Mayor, made entirely of human skulls. In between them, a towering wooden rack displaying thousands more skulls with bored holes on either side to allow the skulls to slide into the wooden poles. Unquote. You might think that is a myth. Hardly. Lizzie Ward in Science Magazine wrote that archaeologists at the National Institute of Anthropology and History confirmed what the conquistadors reported, quote, They discovered 
and excavated the remains of the skull rack and one of the towers underneath a colonial period house on the street that runs behind Mexico City's cathedral. The scale of the rack and towers suggests that they held thousands of skulls, testimony to an industry of human sacrifice unlike any other in the world. Unquote. Some who were sacrificed were prisoners from war. Others were losers in what were called the Flower Wars. This was a mock war staffed with volunteers with a neighboring empire, and the losers would be sacrificed. It was an honor. Criminal debtors, prostitutes, and many others were also sacrificed. There were gladiator-like games, and many, many were volunteers. There were children's sacrifices for the god of rain and lightning. If there were twins, one of the babies went to sacrifice. And there was the festival of the flame man. This was really gross. They flayed someone and then danced in their skin. One guy required a girl to be beheaded. Another required the throats of children to be cut. Cannibalism, too. How many sacrificed in a year? Nobody really knows, but at least 25,000 and maybe up to 250,000. The Aztecs were not alone in ancient times, just perhaps the most robust and vivid in their practices. In fact, one can search in vain for any ancient or even more modern society before 1776 that dedicated itself to the proposition of the unalienable right of life. You might say, well, what about ancient Greece? Life and death there was a vexing proposition. Nearly forgotten but tremendously influential founding father John Wilson explained how one brilliant society addressed life. Quote, in Sparta, nothing was deemed so precious as the life of a citizen, and yet in Sparta. If an infant, newly born, appeared to those who were appointed to examine him, ill-formed or unhealthy, he was, without further ceremony, thrown into a gulf near Mount Taygetus. Well, you might observe Sparta was unique. It was a military-based society. Hence the name, Spartan. Okay, fair enough. What about Athens? Wilson explains that, quote, At Athens, the parent was empowered when a child was born to pronounce on its life or its death. At his feet, it was said, if he took it in his arms, this was received as the gracious signal for its preservation. If he died not a look of compassion on the fruit of his loins, it was removed and exposed. Almost over all the rest of Greece, this barbarity was permitted or authorized. Unquote. Oh my, no unalienable right to life there. How about ancient China or similar cultures? No, they had similar practices. The Roman Empire. Wilson explains again that, quote, the son held his life by the tenure of his father's pleasure. In his father's house, he was a mere thing, unquote. Well, what about more modern times? Perhaps in the West, certainly Western Europe. How about France? Ah, that's a fanciful idea. As we learned a few episodes ago, pre-revolutionary France was structured into three estates, with each estate having different power and authority. The first estate, the clergy, the second estate, the nobility, and the third estate, everyone else. There was no constitution as we think of it, and no dedication to the unalienable rights of man and life in particular. But wait, you might rightfully say, in revolutionary France there was the model, life, liberty, and fraternity. There it is. First off, that revolution started in 1789, so well after the American Revolution in 1776. In fact, the Americans paved the way for the French, but the French took a very dark turn. Second, the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, 
adopted on August 26, 1789, as the revolution was just getting started, did recognize that they were inalienable rights. This document is the closest thing the French will have to the Declaration of Independence. However, the French did not declare that the rights were endowed by the Creator. To be fair, the document refers to the Supreme Being, but it never actually makes the connection between the Supreme Being and the unalienable rights it recognizes. Nevertheless, at this time, the French are strongly moving in the right direction. On the other hand, in its 17 articles, life is never mentioned. Life, liberty, and fraternity was a phrase used by the French revolutionary leader Maximilien Robespierre in a speech on December 5, 1790, and it became one of the many slogans bantered about during the revolution. However, that same revolutionary government proved that it was hardly dedicated to life. Quite the opposite. The French Revolution is truly one of the most complex and monumental events, well, a series of events over a span of years, in the modern age. In broad strokes, the revolution started to reform the government, then sharply broke with the past, and then radically transformed not just the government, but the society. The ancient regime came crashing down with attacks and the uprooting of the king, the nobility, the Catholic Church, and other fixtures of society, and exalting the will of the people. They even changed the calendar. The national government, a single legislative chamber, had no limits on its power. Important for our purposes, in the height of the fever, the radical transformation brought about by the French Revolutionary government in 1793, it delegated most of its authority over the military and public order to a 12-member Committee of Public Safety. That same year, the French adopted a new Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen. Although it has many of the sentiments regarding inalienable rights of the original 1789 document, it also turned the tables. Article 27 of the Declaration of Rights of 1793 specifically provided that, quote, any individual who usurps the sovereignty of the people shall be instantly put to death by free men, unquote. Believing that anyone who did not follow exactly their beliefs was an enemy of the people, the Committee of Public Safety ushered in the reign of terror and ordered the massacre of tens of thousands, including former nobles, commoners, priests, and nuns. It commissioned the guillotine against its own members and devoured heroes of the revolution as quickly as they were anointed, all in the name of the will of the people. Thousands were indiscriminately killed by cannon fire and drownings, and the guillotine reaped a grim harvest. Simply put, dissent was a death sentence. The enlightened people of France rejected the inalienable right of life for massacre and execution. For as terrible as all this was, it just scratches the surface at how maliciously destructive governments can be against their own people. Our next quick trip will be to the Ottoman Empire. In the 15th century, Armenia was swept into the Ottoman Empire. With the loss of the homeland, Armenians were dispersed across several different nations, with a strong concentration in the Ottoman Empire. Many different ethnic groups and religions were included in the empire, but at its core, the Ottoman Empire was a Muslim empire. The leader of the Ottoman Empire was considered the Caliph, and that is the leader of the Muslims, and the empire was considered to be the Caliphate. You may have heard that term recently in connection with ISIS, because ISIS claimed to bring back the Caliphate. The Armenians were Christians. 
making them people of the book in the eyes of the Ottoman Empire. That is, like Jews and Muslims, they believe in the God of Abraham. Accordingly, they had some rights, but at bottom, the Christian Armenians were second-class citizens beneath the Muslims. For generations, tensions grew between the minority Christian Armenians and the central government. The Young Turks, yes, that is an actual thing, were reform-oriented Turkish leaders who wanted to revive the glory days of the Ottoman Empire. With every passing year, the Ottoman Empire had been weakening, and at the time of the Young Turks, the empire was considered the sick man of Europe. According to the Armenian Genocide Museum Institute Foundation, the Ottomans, led by the Young Turks, had a master plan. To revive the empire, the Young Turks wanted to, number one, unite all Turkish speakers in the empire. Number two, eliminate or convert all non-Muslims. Number three, expand the empire's reach to new heights, going all the way to China, the Caucasus, and Middle Asia. After World War I broke out, the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers of Germany and Austria and opened up a new front in the Middle East on November 2, 1914. In a military disaster, the Russians soundly defeated the Ottomans in the Battle of Sarkomish. According to New York Times writer John Kiffner, the Ottomans scapegoated the Armenians for this loss. They claimed the Armenians had helped the Russians, and the Armenians were marked as a threat to the state. On April 24, 1915, just a few months after the war started, the Young Turks moved on their plans in an intense, brutal, organized effort. However, World War I saw the end of the Young Turks grip on power. The Ottomans lost much of their territory. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk took power over what was left. And what was left of the Ottoman Empire was reconstituted into a secular state, and the current country of Turkey was born. Sounds like a stroke of luck for the Armenians, right? Nope. Turkey continued the genocide until 1923. The Armenian Genocide Museum Institute Foundation lays out how the genocide was carried out both by the empire and then Turkey. Quote, The first phase of the Armenian genocide was the conscription of about 60,000 Armenian men into the Ottoman army, their disarmament and murder by their Turkish fellow soldiers. The second phase started on April 24, 1915, with the arrest of several hundred Armenian intellectuals and representatives of national elite, and their subsequent elimination. The third phase is characterized with the exile of women, children, elderly people, to the desert of Syria. Hundreds of thousands of people were murdered by Turkish soldiers, police officers, Kurdish bandits during the deportation. The others died of epidemic diseases. Thousands of women and children were subjected to violence. Tens of thousands were forcibly Islamized. The last phase is the universal and absolute denial of the Turkish government of the mass deportations and genocide. Unquote. In the end, approximately 1.5 million Armenian people were killed by their own government. The Armenian genocide was far from the only example of government liquidation of its own people. Just a decade later, an adjacent nation, the Soviet Union, completely outstripped the death toll of the Armenian Genocide. Orchestrated by Nikolai Burkin in 1932 and 1933, the Soviet Union caused the death of between 6 to 12 million people in the Ukraine and other areas. Dubbed the Holodomor, which is translated from Ukrainian means death by hunger or killing by hunger, this effort was done to crush the people of the Ukraine, in particular the peasant class. Ukraine had been the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, 
and it was pillaged by the Soviets with the direct purpose of starving out their political opponents. The Soviets also cut off escape routes by shutting down train service, surrounding communities with barricades, and literally shipping back anyone who had escaped. The Soviets also targeted other areas of the country. Timothy Snyderm's insightful book, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, explained the dreadful situation in this way. Quote, survival was a moral as well as a physical struggle. A woman doctor wrote to a friend in June 1933 that she had not yet become a cannibal, but she was not sure that I shall not be one by the time my letter reaches you. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or to prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. Unquote. The Soviet Constitution of 1924, which governed at the time, makes no mention of rights at all, including the right to life. At least they weren't hypocrites. The Soviet Union perfected famine to kill its own citizens. However, the destruction of the unalienable right of life by famine need not necessarily be on purpose. That is, starvation could also result from totalitarian stubbornness and stupidity. The scale of such death can just be utterly unbelievable. Communist China is a black example. The first constitution of the Communist People's Republic of China was adopted on September 20th of 1954 by the First National Congress of the People's Republic of China. Although it lists many individual rights that people are supposed to enjoy, they are not considered unalienable. In small wonder, the Chinese totalitarian central government was in direct control of the society. Everyone needed to bend to its will. The Great Famine in China from 1959 to 1961 was the direct result of the Communist parties dictating how the peasants were to produce food. The totalitarian government attempted to micromanage food production refused to see that it was failing, and brutally imprisoned, tortured, and murdered those who challenged the man-made disaster. Chinese officials euphemistically dubbed the period the three years of natural disaster, or the three years of difficulties. The official Chinese death toll is 20 million. Yang Jisheng, author of The Annals of the Yellow Emperor and the book Tombstone about the famine, estimates it at 36 million. And Frank DeCotter, author of Mao's Great Famine, estimates it at at least 45 million. One Red Guard member, Wai Jingxing, explained what he learned while hiding from persecution in a village hard hit by the famine. Quote, The peasants said their hunger had been so great that they had not even been strong enough to harvest the rice crop when it was ready. Many of them died of hunger watching the grains of rice fall into the fields, blown off by the wind. In some villages, there was literally no one left to take in the harvest. There were banquets at which families had swapped children in order to eat them. What had made them swallow that human flesh amidst the tears and grief of other parents? Flesh they would never have imagined tasting even in their worst nightmares. In a moment, I understand what a butcher he had been. 
the man whose like humanity has not been seen in several centuries, in China not in several thousand years, Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong and his henchmen, with their criminal political system, had driven parents mad with hunger and led them to hand their own children over to others and to receive flesh of others to appease their own hunger. Mao Zedong, to wash away the crime that he had committed in assassinating democracy, had launched the great leap forward and obligated thousands and thousands of peasants, dazed by hunger, to kill one another with hoes and save their own lives thanks to the flesh and blood of their childhood companions. They were not the real killers. The real killers were Mao Zedong and his companions. Unquote. China, in other words, flipped the unalienable right of life on its head to the duty to die to perpetuate the totalitarian government's policy, regardless of how disastrous and stupid it might be. The heartbreak here is incomprehensible. More heartbreak. Last episode, we reviewed social Darwinism, eugenics, and Nazi ideology. Obviously, those doctrines did not embrace a right to life, just the survival of the fittest, and in eugenics and the Nazis, drew in the state not to protect life, but to murder the inferior individuals and races. The horrors of the Holocaust resulted. Lest you think this is all buried in the past, we could explore the genocide in Burundi or the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. But for our last example, we will review genocide in Africa in the 1990s, perpetuated in Rwanda. Historically, Rwanda had been controlled by an ethnic minority, the Tutsis. However, they were eventually ousted by the majority Hutus. A peace accord between the groups was signed in 1993. However, on June 6, 1994, juvenile Habarimana, the Hutu president of Rwanda, was assassinated. His plane was shot out of the sky. The government blamed an ethnic minority Tutsi's rebel group, and the Tutsis blame Hutu extremists. We will likely never know the truth. Regardless of who assassinated the president, extremist Hutus and the Rwandan government jumped into action. A crisis committee was created and headed by a military officer, Theonesti Bogosoro, who organized a systematic liquidation of Tutsis through the military and other arms of the government. First, they purged any government officials who might oppose the genocide. They killed the Hutu Prime Minister, Madame Agath Oyuwiligamana, just before she could appeal for calm. Ten Belgian soldiers who had been guarding her, Joseph Kaga Rumanda, the Hutu president of the Constitutional Court, and other moderates in the government. Again, these moderate Hutu leaders were being killed by extremist Hutus. Second, they unleashed an unrelenting campaign of genocide against the ethnic minority Tutsis, forcing many civilians to slaughter their neighbors and even their own family members. They were ordered to kill all Tutsis and their defenders. Many scholars believe that the genocide was so well organized that it must have been planned for at least a year. In just a hundred days, up to a million Rwandans were slaughtered. There were an estimated 250,000 to 500,000 rapes. And that was only about 25 years ago. Okay, we are done exploring the blood-soaked history of governments slaughtering their own people. The point is that from ancient Greeks and Romans, 
the Aztecs, French, Ottomans, Chinese, Soviets, Nazis, Rwandans, and many, many more, governments across time and the globe have not protected the unalienable right of life. Just the opposite. They murdered their own citizens. America, however, was founded on the belief that life is an inalienable right endowed in each person by the Creator. This understanding likely was the fruit of their embracing the English philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Hobbes explained in his masterwork, The Leviathan, that, quote, The right of nature is the liberty each man hath to use his own power as he will himself for the preservation of his own nature, that is to say, of his own life, unquote. Locke wrote two treatises to justify the glorious revolution of 1688. Well, they were probably already in the works anyway, but it worked out that they justified the revolution. In the second treatise, he explained that natural law had vested in each person the right to life. Quote, the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, that no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. Unquote. Locke reasoned that since we were all made from the Creator, that it was His will that we all exist, and that no one could subordinate the Creator's will by committing murder. In fact, Locke posited that not only should we not harm others, but every person should, quote, as much as he can, preserve the rest of mankind, and not, unless it be to do justice of an offender, take away or impair the life, or what tends to the preservation of life, the liberty, limb, or goods of another, unquote. As such, Hobbes and Locke agreed that the right to life is an inalienable one, endowed by the Creator and nature and nature's God in each person. Hobbes elaborated, quote, Not all rights are alienable. Whensoever a man transferred his right or renounced it to himself, or for some other good he hoped for thereby. For it is a voluntary act, and of the voluntary acts of every man, the object is in some good to himself. And therefore, there be some rights which no man can be understood by any words or other signs to have abandoned or transferred. At first, a man cannot lay down the right of resisting them that assault him by force to take away his life, because he cannot be understood to aim there at any good to himself. The same may be said of wounds and chains and imprisonment. Unquote. That is a long and fancy way of saying, again, that there was unenable rights that could not be given away, including life. In fact, Hobbes and Locke agreed that the whole point of joining into a society and to having a government at all, in the language of Locke, quote, is the preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, which I call by the general name property, unquote. Accordingly, the government has an obligation and duty to protect our lives. This is a matter of natural law, and the government is duty-bound and accountable to God to protect the people under its care. In fact, not only should the government act to protect people, it has a duty to teach its people what is right and wrong, especially in connection with the safety of individuals and criminal justice. Hobbes elaborated, quote, The people are to be taught to abstain from violence to one another's person by private revenges, from violation of conjugal honor, and from forcible rape, and fraudulently surreptition of another's goods, for which purpose also it is to be necessary they be showed the evil consequences of false judgment, by corruption of judges or witnesses, whereby the distinction of property is taken away and justice becomes of no effect." Unquote. 
That's an amazing passage. And it helps explain the view held by Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Rush, and other founders that government has an obligation to provide for free education of children. They wanted to ensure that future citizens understood history and the Constitution, as well as to instill moral values and habits of a free republic based on the foundation of the inalienable rights of men. The idea that the natural right of life should be protected by law was starting to take root in England even before the American Revolution. Sir William Blackstone, the preeminent English legal scholar of his time, wrote in his influential commentaries that, quote, life is the immediate gift of God, a right inherent by nature in every individual, unquote. The idea that people had the inalienable right to life and that it was the duty of government to protect it was clearly announced in the Declaration of Independence. It may be that Blackstone was writing about it in England, but England had not adopted that as a governing principle. It took America to do that. Likewise, the state constitutions adopted in the wake of the Declaration of Independence proclaim similar sentiments. As just one example, Article 1 of the Declaration of Rights of the Pennsylvania Constitution, adopted in 1776, stated, quote, All men have certain natural, inherent, and inalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending of life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, unquote. That this was a universal sentiment can hardly be debated. James Wilson was a crucial member of the founding generation from Pennsylvania. He was a leading legal scholar and a key member of the Constitutional Convention. Beginning in 1790, he delivered a series of legal lectures that accurately summarized the state of the law in America. It was reported by the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser on December 15, 1790, Wilson delivered his inaugural lecture to, quote, the President of the United States, with his lady, also the Vice President, and both Houses of Congress, the President and both Houses of the Legislature of Pennsylvania, together with a great number of ladies and gentlemen, the whole comprising a most brilliant and respectable audience, unquote. That might make a normal person nervous, but not Wilson. He had signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. and was one of the first justices on the United States Supreme Court, where he served for nine years. During his lecture series, Wilson explained that life was an unalienable right given to man as a gift from heaven. He elaborated, quote, Life, and whatever is necessary for the safety of life, are the natural laws of man. Some things are so difficult, other things so plain, that they cannot be proved. It will be more to our purpose to show the anxiety with which some legal systems spare and preserve human life, the levity and cruelty which others discover in destroying or sporting with it, the inconsistency with which in other times it is at sometimes wantonly sacrificed and other times religiously guarded. With consistency, beautiful and undeviating, human life from its commencement to its close is protected by the common law. By the law, life is protected not only from immediate destruction, but from every degree of actual violence, and in some cases, from every degree of danger. Unquote. By exalting the first principle that men had an unalienable right to life, America broke once again with the past and moved mankind forward in a tremendous, unprecedented fashion. Some key takeaways from this episode. Up until 1776, 
No government embraced the unalienable right of life. Ancient civilizations like Sparta, Athens, and Rome, the civilizations in the Americas like the Aztecs, more modern governments like those in the French Revolution, the Ottoman Empire, Communist China, the Soviet Union, the Nazis, Rwanda, all embraced death. They slaughtered the innocents. The Declaration of Independence declared as a self-evident truth that all men are endowed by their creator with the unalienable right of life. We were the first nation in world history to declare that unalienable right of life as a foundation for our government. Governments do not give us the unalienable right of life. It is bestowed upon us from the creator and nature and nature's God. Fellow patriots, thank you for your time. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, when we examine the meaning of the inalienable right of liberty. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on one of those social media platforms I mentioned or connect with me directly at M as in Michael Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, at PatriotWeek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.